Welcome to the Valley Advocate Podcast, featuring interviews that take us deeper into the people and happenings on the local scene. For more podcasts and a closer look at what's going on in the Valley, visit us at valleyadvocate.com. Hello and welcome to the Valley Advocate Podcast. My name is Dave Eisenstatter. I'm the editor of the Valley Advocate. I'm here today with David Bruhl, who is the president of the No Lumbica Project. We are talking today about the uh, River Stories series of events, um, which is talking about Native history, uh, specifically in Western Massachusetts. And um, Steve Farr recently wrote a cover story about this topic, The Other Side of Plymouth Rock, River Stories series, highlighting the Valley's native population is a counterpoint to Plymouth 400. Welcome, David. Thank you for coming in. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, So uh, you're president of the Nolumbika Project. Could you Talk a little bit about the organization just to start off. Yeah, um, basically we're a nonprofit uh, centered in Franklin County, and uh, we have a number of events that occur outside of the Franklin County. But uh, basically, um, uh, our organization came about uh, back in the late 1990s. Um, there was uh, quite a controversial project that was proposed for uh, a site in Greenfield, uh, a ridgeline. I grew up in the vicinity, and we called it Canada Hill. Um, but the um, let's say that the uh, Walmart uh, Corporation wanted to build a uh, shopping plaza at uh, on this particular site on Canada Hill that we knew was a uh, the site of a 10,000-year-old village uh, and burial grounds. And so a group was formed to protect that area. So eventually, um, these, uh, this organization uh, that saved the site was called the Friends of Wissatinawag, which is the uh, native name for that hill. And uh, we won the battle with a lot of support, a lot of fundraising, bake sales, you name it, but they raised a lot of money and got a lot of support from the state, but also from uh, uh, private individuals. So once that battle was won, people stood in front of bulldozers, we did what we had to do. Um, Then all of, many of the people who were involved in that initial organization uh, moved away, and that left a few of us, and so we kind of morphed into the Nolambika Project, since the hill had been saved, but that is Basically, we have stewardship and ownership over that site now. So we're, we're using that uh, area for educational purposes. We, I bring in groups, history, uh, historical societies, and commissioners, and student groups, and all of that. So we morphed from the Wissatinawag, Friends of Wissatinawag, into the Nolambika Project. So beyond the stewardship of that particular um, totally valuable site, incredible archaeological site, uh, we uh, do a lot of public events now. Uh, most of us on the on the board are uh, former educators, and so we do a lot of that kind of outreach. And our our plan w- is essentially to act as an intermediary or a go-between. We find ways to uh, raise funds, write grants, get money, and then turn around and pass those funds on to uh, Native uh storytellers, musicians, um, craftspeople, etc. So we have four events like that per year. And so essentially that's where we're putting all our efforts. This year, 2020, the 400th anniversary of what we all learned in school was mm-hmm. the Plymouth Rock 
Landing, mm-hmm. 1620, with the, the Pilgrims. Um, there is a big event called Plymouth 400 going on in, uh, in Eastern Mass. Mm-hmm. Um, your organization decided uh, that you wanted to create a, a, a different series of events um, observing um, this uh, anniversary year. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, uh, uh, there's a kind of a convergence, a fantastic thing going on right now. It's a tremendous resurgence in interest in Native American, um, what would I call it, uh, the Native American presence, persistence in the Connecticut River Valley in general. Uh, the effort crystallized uh, in uh, during this study that we have, uh, let's say, played a leading role in um, a, of a horrific massacre that occurred in uh, during King Philip's War in uh, 1676 uh, on the site now known as Turner's Falls. It's a little ironic because the general, uh, excuse me, the captain who perpetrated the uh, massacre has lent his name now to that particular place that was as I mentioned earlier, a site, a uh, 10,000-year-old village where people came to fish. Long story short, the, uh, there was a horrific massacre there on May 19th, 1676. <clears throat> we uh, landed a considerable amount of funding from the National Park Service to study that event, which had very rarely, if ever, been even mentioned in history books, but 400 Native people lost their lives. So uh, we began meeting with uh, four tribal historic preservation officers, people from the uh, Wampanoag tribe of uh, Gayhead Aquina, the Narragansett tribe, Indian tribe of uh, Rhode Island, the Nipmuc nations. There are two bands of Nipmuc people in Central and Western Mass, and the Abenaki. And uh, we I worked at getting uh, five towns where these events occurred. You know, modern times now, they, that, that region has been divided up into Greenfield and Deerfield and Montague and Gill and Northfield. So the five uh, historical commissions are represented. And we meet every Wednesday of the first Wednesday of the month around a table, and we go over what the archaeologists that we have hired have come up with. So it's been really fascinating. We got to be very familiar with the history of the Central Valley here. And when we started hearing of the events that were going to take place in Plymouth to celebrate the 1620s, uh, we thought it would be uh, very important to uh, remind people of, first of all, the persistence of the tribal people who are here, but those, what went on in those intervening 400 years between 1620 and 2020. So it really uh, coalesced around those tribal people and some of the commissioners. And then uh, we did meet with the Plymouth 400 people, and uh, they proposed a couple of, uh, well, ideas. They thought that they could provide some logistical support for our plan, but again, uh, personally, this is you know my own personal feeling. I felt a little like it was going to be co-opted, mm. so we decided to go it go it alone. And um, so the Nolambika project took the lead, and we have 
arranged for uh, basically 12 events starting almost at the headwaters of the Connecticut River uh, in uh, uh, partnership with Dartmouth College. So we're starting up in that vicinity and proceeding every month down the river with an event until we reach uh, October at the mouth of the river Essex, at the Connecticut River Museum in Essex. So essentially we have uh, called this River Stories 2020 Recovering Indigenous Voices. And true to our role, we have found the funding and we have found the tribal people to do the presentation. So we are basically the intermediaries. We did the logistics and turned the program over to the native uh, people. So the, up in um, the vicinity of Dartmouth College, Hanover and uh, Thetford Academy, which is just across the river, they, um, that will be the Nulhegan uh, Abenaki people who will be in charge of that event. And so we have uh, the chief, Chief um, uh, Donald will be the, the person who is uh, the MC, and then uh, several storytellers, especially the Bruchaks, Jesse and Joe Bruchak, who are celebrated in, in uh, indigenous circles as being master storytellers. And they'll be, they'll be uh, presenting their stories in terms of how the native people and the river have interacted in reciprocal relationships over the last you know, 400 years and beyond. And we'll then move down to uh, Brattleboro and Northfield and uh, Montague, Turner's Falls, the Discovery Center and Unity Park and then to Amherst uh, at the Hitchcock Center. And uh, as I said, each of these events would be every, every month in a different spot all the way down. Uh, in uh, Springfield, we will have um, a big event there in June and eventually make our way down to the mouth of the river. So. You were telling um, Steve Farr, a writer um, of this story, that kind of one of the um, aims of this series is to show people that Native history isn't just history. Mm -hmm. It's a, it's an active. It's it's mm -hmm. it's been ongoing for four hundred years, right. and there still is um, a real presence in Western, yeah, in, in Western Massachusetts. In Western Massachusetts, you weren't always aware of your. Um, Native ancestry. Maybe could you talk a little bit about how you found out about that yeah. and how you got connected? Well, that that, that was a, again a personal, personally curious story. But um, you know, being of uh, French Canadian descent, the on my father's side of the family, the Brule or Brule, uh, my father always mentioned that we had native descent, but uh, for a, a lot of French Canadians believe that, and, and for the most part it's kind of true. Uh, it was basically a, a policy of the, um, the uh, government, or the royal, what would I call it, uh, state of France to send men over without women, and the intention was to have um, the men marry indigenous people and create a new demographic in Canada and Quebec. So a lot of French Canadians have background. My father was very proud of that, although we had no idea what that was. It was just this was before the advent of any any internet connections and Ancestry.com and all that stuff and all of the various uh, DNA f um, companies that are now uh, proliferating. Um, it was a little bit trickier on my maternal side because of uh, some fairly recent. Uh, issues 
that occurred even in our village of Miller's Falls. So my, uh, my great-grandfather was a man of mixed race and <clears throat> a tribal person uh, from southern New England. So you have what I have learned is that oftentimes in southern New England there was more of an interracial mix than there were in the farther northern parts of the northeast. Uh, and uh, many of these tribes, including the Narragansetts and the tribe that I descend from, which are called the Nahantics from basically Niantic near Lyme, Connecticut, near the mouth of the river, uh, many of these uh, uh, people who are descendants of those tribes, the Pequot, Narragansett, Wampanoag, and my tribe, the Nahantics, are triracial. And uh, in many cases, uh, uh, African, African blood tended to dominate. And so when my great-grandfather moved up the valley from the southern part of Connecticut into Deerfield and later where I live in Miller's Falls, fairly dark-skinned, uh, that that it was just after the Civil War, that um, was uh, well-known in the village. Uh, he had some very dark-skinned uh, siblings, and uh, he passed for white eventually, and so all of that was buried. Uh, he married a woman from Scotland, my great-grandmother from Aberdeen, and they basically settled in the house where I live. However, as a side story, uh, I'm very proud of this, my... my uh, Grandfather's brother, also lived in Miller's Falls, was a fantastic baseball player. He got recruited in 1912 to pitch in Fenway Park the year it opened for the Red Sox and all this. However, he managed to play a season, and then at the, at the end of the season, uh, there was a letter that turned up with uh, uh, in the offices of the management of the Red Sox, kind of uh, ratting him out as not being really white, although he looked it. And so the uh, Sox spent a kind of a, sent a kind of a spy down into Miller's Falls and Greenfield to check out the story and uncovered, of course, uh, my uh, granduncles, uh, um, cousins, hmm. aunts and uncles who were, you know, by then had married into black families in Greenfield and uh, Native American families, but they're pretty dark-skinned, so they, you know, they reported back to the Sox management, and the Sox dropped them like, wow. uh, like a bad penny uh, in 1913. Wow. It was that quick. And so in, in the, I wrote a book about uh, my discoveries uh, called Looking for Judah, who was my great-grandfather. And um, I am pretty sure, based on the family oral history, that the, uh, my great-grandmother, seeing that her son's, uh, you know, career was going to be cut off and because of his association with people of color, or because of his uh, uh, colored blood, that uh, she just kind of put an uh, end to any kind of interaction with those families. So we were all raised being told that we were Scottish, Irish, and French. And then... Um, a series of coincidences occurred that I was able, I mean, recently, within the last 15 years, 10, 12 years, was able to uh, get, uh, get the true story out. So 
Jennifer Lee, another organizer with uh, River Stories, um, was talking to our writer Steve uh, Farrer about people in Mass in Western Mass might not know. Mm -hmm. Uh, they might know they have some native ancestry. They might not know what tribe they're in and that it can be hard to connect up. As she, as she put it, the DNA testing won't bring you into a community. Mm -hmm. And there, um, you know, she was describing that if you're a uh, Christian, you go to a church. Yeah. If you're Jewish, you find a synagogue. But, you know, mm -hmm. there's not um, or it can be more difficult to find community. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, once you learn about this um, this ancestry or this mm -hmm. DNA, yeah, um, that was uh, that that was almost the first time I had heard Jennifer say that, and it really resonated with me too. Because basically, uh, you know, many people uh, have heard of my story, or when we're talking and they ask me, and almost everybody has a story like that in the family. Oh yes, my, you know, my great-grandmother was a Cherokee princess or something like that. For some reason, Cherokee has always fascinated people. They don't mention Wampanoag or Narragansett or Abenaki. It's that mystique, probably because of the Trail of Tears, and that whole story is well known uh, you know, around Andrew Jackson's time. So when, Je when Jennifer said that, I, it really struck home because there are many, many, many people who have those stories in their family, but they can't, first of all, uh, find out much anymore because it was so far back. And as Jennifer said, you know, what do you do? And so what we're finding is with the events that we're sponsoring, people are, are coming out and at very least getting exposed to some of the, of the culture uh, that it has been buried in their family trees for a long time. It's no, you know, it's not original with me, but when you, when you think about the colonization and assimilation that has happened in New England of Native people, or, or many people, were all a mix. And Jennifer brought that out. You know, she, she could put her finger on, you know, uh, French, uh, French fur trappers and Irish farmers and uh, uh, English uh, farmers and things like that. So all of us are such a mix. But um, for some people, the, the desire to know more about their indigenous background is really strong. So by these events, yeah, people can come out and at least connect with a, a culture. Uh, many of our events involve 10 or 11 different tribes who come, especially the, our main event is in the first weekend of August uh, at the... Uh, on this, basically across the river from the site where the massacre happened. We're really um, pleased to be able to uh, reawaken and try to help heal um, the terrible events that happened, happened there. And uh, it also affords an opportunity to people who are non-tribal to come and because you almost put your finger on it there is that a lot of people think that the tribes are extinct, there's nobody left, there's no one, and in fact, because of those 400 years of literally of repression, people have stayed under the radar. There were several thousand uh, people, Nipmuc people, living in Central and Western Mass, and yet whoever hears talk about them, a lot of people um, have to stay under the radar. The kids get bullied in schools around Worcester and um, 
Fitchburg and Lemonster and those, those places where there are, uh, you know, uh, significant populations of native, native people. So it's, it's been very, uh, very difficult for a lot of these native people. So one of the, one of the women who Steve interviewed, uh, her name is Liz uh, Coldwin uh, Kaiser, and she described some of those in, within her family. The, first of all, the range of skin color is unbelievable. Secondly, that some people in her family have wanted to maintain connection with the tribal identity, and others, uh, you know, f felt they had to leave it behind because they were just—it was just too much of a. The kids were bullied in school. Uh, they felt discriminated against. Um, so a lot of, you know, there's, there's a lot of that still. Um, when the, I mentioned in detail the, the organization that we have formed with uh, the National Park Service to study that massacre and the tribal people who come forth every, uh, every month to meet with us for the past five years. Uh, oftentimes, especially the, well, a couple of representatives that I've gotten to be really friendly with, I just say, you know, they are so, so pleased to be able to sit at the table with us. And I, I you know, that never ceases to uh, cause me some discomfort saying, you know, that shouldn't be. They should not feel that, you know, that those of us who uh, are representing perhaps um, the non-tribal groups, you know, we, we shouldn't feel like we have any particular privilege, but of course, they, many of these tribal people have been conditioned to just, like I said, stay below the radar. These events will consist of stories and lectures, but also music and dancing, mm -hmm. is that right? Right, right. yeah. So, yes, we have, uh, we have a significant number of musicians. We try to... Uh, proposed to the different tribal uh, groups, so the, the Nulhegan Abenaki in the, in the northern part of New England and the Elnu Abenaki in the vicinity of uh, uh, Northfield, uh, excuse me, Northfield and uh, Rattleboro and the Wampanoag in the center. So each of, obviously each of those um, tribal peoples have musicians because music and dance is very, very important. For, for, for people just to maintain the culture and transmit the culture. So up, uh, we will start with a, a, a great young uh, guitarist uh, and singer named Brian Blanchette, who sings in Abenaki, and uh, will be performing at a couple of our events in the northern part of the valley. And then we have uh, other people at our festival in August that will also be performing the off I mean sometimes there are five tribes represented there the the Wampanoags oftentimes the Mohawk group a Mohawk group from uh, the uh, reservation in uh, in the Hudson River Valley come over sing in Mohawk oh, and, and all the way down Larry Spotted Crow uh, will be at uh, the Hitchcock Center so all kinds of, of music going on. We'll wind up with a uh, drum group from Yale University where the uh, Native American Studies group uh, has, has its own um, yeah, drum and song groups. So, so yeah, that is a really important part. Well, the full schedule uh, is available online, nolumbicaproject.org, mm -hmm. is that right? Right, yep. Um, yep. And 
David, thank you so much for, well, for coming in and, and talking about these uh, series of events. Yeah, thank you very much. I appreciate the opportunity to at least get a couple of these stories out there because I feel, uh, it feels to me like um, there's some kind of momentum building, which is really important. Uh, breaking news was uh, a several million dollar grant given to the uh, five college Native American studies group, uh, studies, uh, and then just two days ago, I heard that uh, University of Connecticut was also going to sponsor uh, and fund a, two professorships for Native American studies there. So there's some kind of mm. action momentum building. So I think it's really exciting. Good time and it, to be and here. It, and it's great to have this be yeah. a part of that. Right. Excellent. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. And don't forget to visit us at valleyadvocate.com. Thank you.